You'll remember last week we saw in Romans chapter 2, and it was really the last segment of Romans uh, in chapter 2, where Paul started to deal with the Jews on their circumcision. Now, I told you last week that, that we were going to kind of get into some heavy stuff, and I, I hope I, I kind of took a little cross-section with many of, of you, and it, you seemed to, younger Christians seemed to grasp it. Uh, well, and today is, it's, I'm going to talk about well, probably one of the most crucial aspects of your, your life as a Christian after you get saved. And um, we started to see how that Paul began to, in the last segment, began to deal with the Jews about their circumcision. And we learned that to the nation of Israel, circumcision was a sign that God gave to the nation of Israel of the covenant that he had given them through Abraham. We saw that in Genesis chapter 17. I'm just kind of kind of refreshing your memory here so you don't we just can follow along where we're going. Remember, I also told you that in the Bible there's three circumcisions. And uh, you have the circumcision of Israel, which was the physical circumcision that was of the covenant. Then we found last week that God looked at the Gentiles, and he talks about a circumcision of their heart. And that is a circumcision that was based on, to the Gentiles, based on their conscience of what the Word of God said. And we talked about those two last week, and I I told you that there was a third one, and I wanted to wait and do that one by itself because it's it's so vitally important. And really, Romans is the foundation for for what we're going to talk about today, and uh, it's the uh, circumcision that takes place to the body of Christ or the church. And uh, you remember I told you last week how that the Jews, through their self-righteousness, had taken the physical act of circumcision and they're elevated way beyond where it should be. They're, they're, we're, they're, they're saying it's some kind of badge of their spirituality that if they are circumcised physically that they're the only ones going to heaven and everybody else, you know. And Paul takes them the task on that and shows them that isn't about the physical circumcision. It's about do you obey the law and the Word of God that you've given, God has given you that the circumcision was supposed to be a, a picture of. And, of course, I told you last week how that uh, we would study the last one by itself here because it's so in, vitally important to you and to me. And it's called the circumcision of Christ in your Bible. Uh, and it's in a context by itself uh, because of its absolute importance. You know, I don't know of another doctor, and I deal with people all the time, have for 30-some years. I don't know of another issue that most of God's people struggle with than the aspect of, of their eternal security. I think that the, the, the more of God's people struggle uh, with if they're really saved or not, probably than more any other issue that I've ever dealt with. And I know you get into all kinds of problems, but I'm going to tell you, the fact that, uh, you know, that a person uh, gets to the point in their life where they, 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 they really doubt or they struggle with their salvation uh, is, is because of one concept. And we see it in Israel. You know, uh, Israel had come to the place where they had taken all the great teachings that God had given them and they had either, have either misdefined them or they have wrongly defined them. And Israel, by the time Paul's dealing with them, is just a former image of themselves. I mean, they're, they're hardly recognizable to the people that God had called out of Egypt back there in the book of Exodus because they've gotten so far away from God. And we find, and we're talking about this in our institute now, that in that 400 years when they went into the captivity till Christ shows up, 
The devil just does a number on the nation of Israel, and they're really in an apostate mess when, uh, when Christ shows up. And Israel, as I said, basically had become an empty shell. Paul says that they have a form of God, but they don't have any knowledge of God. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 3 when he talks about Christians that are in the same boat, that they say they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. The average Jew at the first coming of Christ, and this is by way of uh, perspective for you, the average Jew at the first coming of Christ is so absolutely out of touch with the reality of what God wanted him to be that if you would take and detail out the Old Testament to what a Jew was supposed to believe, what he was supposed to do, and what he was supposed to follow, and then compare what the nation of Israel, <coughs> the state that they're in at the first coming of Christ, it would blow you away. And yet I say that to tell you this. The same thing that happened to the Jews is what's happened to the church. If you would go back and look at the early church in the book of Acts and then, and then take a pretty in-depth study of church history, you would find that the church today, right before the second coming of Christ, is in the same boat that Israel was in right before the first coming of Christ. The parallels between the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and the church, the body of Christ, are so striking throughout the Bible that, and it's one of the ways that God wants us to understand how that you and I are to stay between the white lines in our lives. Now, you hear me say this all the time, and I, I constantly keep it before you. It's probably the one thing that, that I talk about more than anything else because I understand its importance in the Bible. And, uh, you know, you find, that, uh, you find that the church today and most of God's people, they have lost the two main ingredients, or in many cases, they never got there. But the two main ingredients that you and I have to have to survive as a Christian one is discernment, and the other one is discretion. Now, discernment gives you the ability to have discretion. And what you do when you learn the Bible and what you do when you grow through the Word of God and you come to the point where, uh, you know, that you learn and you have discretion and you have the ability to be able to discern. Because the Bible tells you over and over and over again that what the devil wants to do to you and to me is the same thing he did to the nation of Israel. The Bible says the devil is the great deceiver. He wants to deceive you and I. And just as right before the first coming of Christ, the nation of Israel was totally deceived because God, the devil had taken all the things that God had given to them, the Christians right before the second coming of Christ are also deceived because the devil has taken from us. And we just like Israel, we have misdefined or we have redefined some of the crucial things and we've lost our ability to discern We've lost our ability to, uh, have the, to understand uh, all that God has for us by discerning it and having the discretion to know uh, what is right and what is wrong. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, and when you start talking this way, and I, a lot of people, you know, because they, they maybe from where they've been raised or what churches they've been in or their lack of knowledge about the Bible, you know, they, would, they look around and they see, all of the things that supposedly is going on in, in the Christianity that look like it's so good. Well, I guarantee you, if you showed up at the first coming of Christ and looked at the nation of Israel, you'd see a lot of movement going on, a lot of things. But when you got underneath, you found a bunch of people who really had no relationship with God whatsoever. And unfortunately, I think that's much of what we have in Bible Christianity today. And if somebody would dispute that with me, 
I can, I can prove that in one, in one short, small question. And, uh, you know, and you know around here, you know, I, I, I give everybody a lot of grace because I realize that once you get saved, it takes quite a while, uh, maybe three or four years to really get your feet down. We offer a lot of things around here that help accelerate your spiritual growth. If you just get saved, or maybe you come into our church and you've not really been into a Bible teaching church, one of the first things I encourage you to do is to get discipled. Let a couple of our gals, if you're a young lady, or a couple of our guys, if you're a young man, take you and bring you through the basic fundamental aspects of your Bible that really puts you on some kind of footing of understanding how the Bible all goes together. I had last, uh, last year before our anniversary Sunday, I had several of our guys, the older guys, work on a constitution uh, for our church. And uh, you can get a copy of it over there. Most of you have a copy of it. And uh, I told them, I said, now look, you guys go through there and you, you define what this church is and what it stands for. Because, you know, they had, we had been around now for three or four years and I felt like it was time to put some things down in paper where we could use it. And I, but I had no idea, and I found out this last week, that several of you are taking young Christians and you're taking that, that, that constitution and you're bringing those people through and using the own church constitution that those guys put together to lay out and define Bible doctrine. I, I, don't, I don't know what else to tell you. It's things like that that really, that really uh, make this church strong because uh, you, you've got to understand how important it is to learn what the Bible says. But I want to, on any level where you're at, if you just come in or you've been around for a while or wherever you're at, we've got a two-year Bible Institute program that people can get in. We, we have the books of the Bible we're coming through in a very, uh, very... Uh, uh, detailed way, and, and we're up to the book of Ruth now. There's, there's something for you on every level. And on top of that, you know, I'll spend an hour a week with you or every other week or once a month, whatever works for you, of helping you figure out your Bible. Because the bottom line is this. If you don't learn your Bible, you're going to be a victim, uh, in, in a strange sense of the word, of your own uh, inability to, to learn the Word of God. And I can show you how that God's people today or just like the nation of Israel, by asking you one question this morning. And I want to pose this question to you, but at the same time, I want to put it in a context that if you've been, if, if, if you're just maybe visiting this church, or maybe you're somebody that started coming to this church within the last three or four years, you know what, I'm not even talking to you about this. I'm talking to those of you who, Christians who have been saved at least four or five years. And, uh, you know, and you, uh, you know for sure you're saved. You've been involved in this church or uh, other Bible-believing churches. And you are, you know, you you're, hold yourself up as someone who understands. Uh, I realize that in any church you have people on all different levels. But even if you're a young Christian, it's a great question for you to strive for in your own uh, understanding that at point you make sure you get this accomplished in your life. Now, let me ask you this question, and this is kind of a preface to where we're going to go today. And I want to show you how lack God's people really are when it comes to some of the basic things of the Bible. Let me ask you this question. And obviously, don't raise your hand. But what really happened to you the day you got saved? Now, I know the moment I say that, all the terminology comes up. Well, Bob, I got born again. Well, that's nice. Well, I got washed in the blood. Well, I applied Christ's death on the cross to my sin. Those are all true answers, but that didn't tell me what what transpired in your life the day you got saved. Now, what I'm asking is more in-depth than that. 
What I'm saying, when I say what happened to you today to got saved, what I'm saying is, what changed about you? What changed at that glorious moment when supposedly you passed from the darkness to the light? What changed about your physical body the moment you got saved? What was the difference immediately after you got saved than before you got saved concerning your body, your soul, and your spirit? You see, these are the questions that, 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 that you have to understand. And, and, and let me, if you don't know that, and I'm not trying to sow doubt in anybody's mind today, but, so you've got to hear me out on this. Let me ask you this question. What proof do you have that you're really saved? Are you going to say, well, I went forward in the church? Are you going to say, well, I, because I say so? Because my parents, I've had people say, and I say, are you saved? And they say, yeah, my parents told me I got saved when I was nine years old. So you're going to tell me you're saved based on what your parents told you? Are you going to tell me you're saved because you hope so, you think so? The most greatest fundamental doctrine in the Bible that you have to start with and you have to understand totally and completely. And very frankly, if it's say five years or more and you don't know the answer to this without opening up your Bible, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Because the greatest fundamental doctrine in the Bible is actually what took place in your life uh, the day you got saved. I deal with a lot of people that struggle with the issue of their eternal security. And, and, and I see people that try to deal with that. Now, I'm going to give you some great counseling tips today if you ever get to the point where you start working with people. I'm going to give you some great insight today on why this, and this doctrine that we're going to talk about is so important. I deal with a lot of God's people who, who struggle with many issues in their life. I would say that in many cases they struggle with the issue of their eternal security. And they're always asking me, and, and many times they're asking you. How many times I've been asked, somebody calls me on the phone, and they say, hey, look, I'm dealing with so-and-so, or somebody will say, Bob, I'm really having a tough time with my eternal security. Uh, could you give me some verses that will really help me understand that? And if you're ever going to deal with people, let me just say this before we go any farther in this. Verses will not help you understand or get a grasp on your eternal security. Putting a verse to your inability to understand if you're really saved or not is like putting a band-aid on a broken arm. It's like me throwing quarters at you when you owe $250,000. Giving you a verse or verses will not deal with the issue of your eternal security. You know what you need? You need to understand the doctrine of eternal security. You don't need a couple of band-aid verses. You need to understand and somebody to sit down with you. If I had the, at the end of this message this morning, if you pay attention, there will be never a doubt in your mind how you could think if you were truly saved, you could ever not be saved because I'm not going to throw verses at you. I'm going to show you the doctrinal teaching that would end it for you forever about any doubt you have in your mind. We got the idea. We got a lot of fixed, quick, uh, quick fix Christians today. They got a problem in their life, but they, they, they have never learned a great lesson that it takes. Uh, it's a lot easier to get into the problem you're in than it is to get out of it. And it takes a lot longer and it's a lot harder sometimes to turn the boat around that it was for you just to jump in the boat. 
Now, that's true of any situation. I have people come in and, you know, I'll talk to them and they're going through some issue in their life and they, they're, they're impatient because who doesn't want to fix our problems today? And, you know, they expect that when you come over to my house, I got the bobite pills up here that I give you a pill and your problems are all solved. And I always tell them, I said, you ever been, in the, you ever been, in, been around the boats or in the, in the Navy? Did you ever see, I, I saw a thing the other night on TV about an aircraft carrier, uh, the, uh, the uh, President Reagan, and, and that aircraft carrier. And that thing is probably, it's, it's the largest thing I've ever seen in my life. And you know what it said on there? It said that if that boat wants to turn around, it takes 45 minutes to an hour to turn that aircraft carrier completely around to go the other direction. I mean, we think, you know, you just spin the wheel and it turns. No. You got something that's four football fields long. Weighs something like what? 16 million tons? Got 5,000 plus people on it? You got to take your time turning that big sucker around because it just don't turn on a dime. And sometimes when we have issues in our life, we want to turn them around on a dime, but it takes a while to do it. And people get discouraged. But I'll tell you this. You don't solve whatever problem your issue is today, whatever thing you're dealing with, you don't solve it by just getting a couple of Band-Aid verses. And I tell people this all the time. If you've got an issue in your life and you know it's wrong, the only way you fix it is if you understand it's wrong and you know it's wrong, then you attack it. You attack it with a vengeance. You find out everything you can about it in the Bible. You deal with it. You attack it. You learn it. You understand it. And then through that is the only way you're going to deal with it. I have people all the time, you know, they'll call me on the phone and they'll say, I've got four Mormons on my front porch. Give me some verses to whack them. <laughs> Quick fix Christians. I got four Mormons on my door, on my doorstep, and I'm going to call Bob, and he's going to give me four or five verses, and I'm going to go out in there and shoot him to the ground and I'm going to put my foot on him and I'm going to have my picture taken. Like Frank Buck. In every case, you're going to wind up getting your tail waxed. That's a military term. You don't know what that means. Dennis knows what it means. I see him smiling back there. And what you do is you come to the point where you don't learn to deal with people by getting a few verses. You got to learn the doctrine. You got to know what they know better than they do, and you got to know what the Bible says better than they do, and then you whack them. Getting a couple band aid verses to throw out to them, they're going to laugh at you. You know why? All around this world, you hear it in the news all today, all around the world. You know why all the Islamic nations out there and all those people, you know, and everybody's talking about, and there's a big argument in Washington about the fact that we need to sit down and we need to negotiate with these guys. You know, we need to talk things through. And, uh, you know, and just like President Bush, and I love him. I mean, I pray for him every day. But going over to Saudi Arabia and sitting down and saying, hey, could you, you know, hat in your hand, could you produce more oil so we would have, yeah, like he's going to say, oh, yeah, I don't need all that money. I mean, $122 a barrel, 60 million barrels a day. I don't need a calculator to know that's a lot of money. Why don't they ever come to our church and tithe? I don't understand that. <laughs> but you know what? Like, he's going to say, oh, we'll help you out. 
They're not going to help you out. It's part of the whole system. They don't care. And when we sit around and we say to our enemies, well, let's negotiate. Let's figure it out. Let's sit out and talk about it. Hey, that mindset of that Muslim looks at you doing that as weakness. In the history, he never sat down and negotiated with anybody. They go in, kill every woman, kill every child, kill everybody, and take over the world. Now, what do you want to talk about? Whether I should lay down or you're going to kill me standing up. You don't negotiate with that. They come at you with a company, you bring a battalion. They bring a battalion, you bring a division. They bring a division, you bring in a corps. They have one ship, you send 20. They have one plane, send in five. The only way, that's all they understand. We're today thinking this, oh, you know, I got an idea. Let's just stand up here, mafaba, gaba, rabba, haba. Let's stand up here and hold hands in. And I'm going to leave you in kumbaya. Crazy. There are no quick fixes in in the Christian life like there's no quick fixes in the world. It takes hard work and it turns learning what your problem is inside and out. Now I can show you how to blow a Jehovah Witness out of the sky in 30 seconds. I can wax a Mormon's rear end in 40 seconds. And I'm giving him 10 seconds to fall to the ground without a parachute. But if I told you that, you'd look like an idiot. You'd be like giving a 45 automatic to a six-year-old. And you kill yourself. Because you've got to learn the inside and out. You've got to learn the doctrine of those things. And you know what's wrong with your eternal security? You don't know what happened the day you got saved. You couldn't open up a Bible and show me, Bob, when I trusted Christ, this is what changed about me the day I got saved. And based on me understanding that, I know I can't ever lose it. And I know I got it. That's your problem. And let me just say to you, you don't get your salvation down, you ain't going anywhere for God. You ain't going anywhere for God. And it's the importance of understanding. Boy, when I was growing up, old Mel Sabaka, my father and the Lord, he beat this into my head every day of my life. It was Bible doctrine. It was Bible doctrine. It was Bible doctrine. Now, I'm not saying that if you struggle with your salvation, you're not saved. I'm not saying that, and I don't want to put anybody on a false guilt trip, but I'm telling you, you will never get the assurance of your salvation. I mean, I can give you John 3, 16, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, 13, John chapter 14. I can give you 100 verses, and it won't fix your problem. Because the problem is, you don't know what changed inside you. You've got to get the doctrine. That's what I'm going to give you today. But I'm going to give you today. Now let's talk about this thing of doctrine for a moment because I say a lot about it. And uh, you need to understand the concept here. If in your Bible, in your New Testament, I don't know if you ever noticed this or not. I say it all the time. Many times I don't say it and say anything about it because it's so in my mind just from the years of training that I don't even think about it. But you never notice how the, Old, in the New Testament is basically broken down for you. Uh, and it was done by Christians... Uh, the true line of the church that, that made it really easier. For in your Bible, you have three books that are called what we call the pastoral epistles. In other words, if you want to be a pastor or you want to be a leader or you want to be someone who is, who is in charge of ministry and runs ministries, these three books are what you should be really all about and understand. And they're called the pastoral epistles. They're First and Second Timothy, 
Both Timothy, Timothy was a pastor, and there's Titus. Titus was a pastor. And you'll find that God picked two guys, wrote three books, and you, when you put that thing together, you find that those are called in the Bible-believing world today, pastoral epistles. In other words, they're the epistles, that's a book, written to men and women who want to be in leadership or men who desire the job of a pastor. The great books. And they really lay out and lay down all of the things that you and I need to understand. Now, when you come through there, you're going to find that there's five key ingredients. And I don't have time to bring you through these books today, but it's important to understand where I'm going with this before we actually get there. When you start to come through First and Second Timothy and Titus, you're going to find five ingredients that he says you've got to have. And I know there are ingredients for a pastor, and I know there are ingredients for a leader, but I want to tell you something else. There's nowhere in the Bible, there's nowhere in the Bible where God ever recognizes a child of God who gets saved and then does not get involved in ministry someplace along the line. If you think that's true, you've been, you've been reading from the reverse revision. You've got something wrong someplace. God never acknowledges, He never recognizes a child of God that doesn't grow up into ministry. Doesn't mean you'll be a pastor. Doesn't mean you'll pastor a church. But God has a plan for you. We've talked about it many, many times. And that plan is to do something with your life. And God has called you to do that. And the way you do that is to understand the importance of learning your Bible and then let God put you into that, that aspect of that ministry. Now, I'm, 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 I'm going to walk you through these things. Now, the first thing he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, and he says it in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, first thing you find is he talks about the uh, child of God being sound in his doctrine. We'll talk about that in a moment. The second thing you're going to find in Titus chapter 1, verse 13, that you and I are going to be sound in our faith. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 talks about that we are to be sound in the words that we use. And Titus chapter 2, verse 8 talks about the fact that you and I are to be sound in our speech. Now that's four of them. Because the last one is the, really the byproduct of them all. And that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. And that's where the greatest thing that doctrine produces is a sound mind. You see, here's how it works. Sound doctrine. And doctrine is basically knowing what you believe and why. We'll talk about it in a minute. Sound doctrine leads to, ladies and gentlemen, for the child of God, a sound mind. In other words, when you have sound doctrine, in time you get a sound mind. That means you understand what you believe. A sound mind, because you understand what you believe, now leads to a sound faith. You don't question where you're at. When you get a sound doctrine that produces a sound mind, that leads to sound faith, that leads to sound words. In other words, when you speak, you speak with authority. What you say can be traced through the Bible. You know what the scribes and the Pharisees didn't like about Christ? They didn't like the fact, and the Bible tells you this several places in the gospel, they didn't like the fact that when he spoke, he spoke with authority. In fact, there's a place in there that the Bible says the scribes and the Pharisees didn't like because he spoke with authority, and they didn't. Because what you have is when you get sound doctrine, which leads to a sound mind, which leads to sound faith, 
which will lead to sound word, it will lead to sound speech. It means that you, you, when you talk about what you believe, people listen because you know what you're talking about. You're not somebody that tries to put band-aids on things. You're not somebody who tries to run around and get a quick fix. You invest the time into your life to learn why the things are the way they are in the Bible. Why it works, why this, and in your whole life. This is why the pursuit of knowledge with God and the Word of God and the wisdom of God is a lifelong pursuit. You know how many things that entails? You know how many cults are out there in the world that you've got to know better than the people who believe it? You know how many, how many bad teachings are out there and what this says and what that says? It's an investment of the rest of your life. Of taking doctrine, which is truth, and letting it produce a sound faith, a sound mind, a sound words, and sound speech. Nothing worse in the world than listening to somebody talk about the Bible when they don't know what they're talking about. And we have that a lot today. One of the worst things you can do with a child of God is try to walk somebody through something when you don't understand it yourself. And, uh, I, you know, on, you, you, on Thursday nights, I've said this how many times, when somebody's asked a question, and it's been a very in-depth question, and it's something that probably took me five years to understand, and I lay it out for you in 45 minutes, I always instinctively say this. Now, look, you know the old thing, don't try this at home. Now, don't go out on your friends at work tomorrow and try to show them how smart you are with the Bible. Don't go home and, and try to show your kids your daughter or your, or your son or your wife, how brilliant you are in the Bible because you spent 45 minutes having me lay out something took me five or six years to understand. Because you know why? You just look like an idiot. You start to get into it, you got a great introduction, but you just fall apart before you get into it. And then you say this, well, he said something else, but I can't remember what he said now. And oh, it's, uh, oh, it was really good. And boy, I'll tell you what, oh yeah, this, this, and this. Well, that's not exactly right, that's backwards. This and this and this. And before you're done, you've done more damage than you should have just said, you ought to get the tape. Amen. And you ought to learn the doctrine. That's why I told you. When I grew up, I went to a Bible study like you guys do on Thursday night, where with any question you want to ask about the Bible... I don't think in the five years I was there, <clears throat> I ever asked one question. What I did was, every time somebody else asked a question, my goal was to make sure by next Thursday night, when I come back, that I got those questions down, got the references down, <clears throat> and if somebody would ask that question next week, I was prepared to explain it because I took the time that week to learn it, understand it, and to know it, and to take it apart and put it back together again. That's how you learn your Bible. You come to Thursday night Bible study, if you even come anymore, you come to Thursday night Bible study like it's a bridge game, like it's your bowling league, like it's a softball thing. You just come to get what you can get and go home. You don't work anything through. Then you wonder why you don't know the Bible. Then you wonder why you got to call me up to get your quick fix verses because you don't know what you're talking about. You got to get sound speech which come from sound words, which come because you got a sound faith, which come from a sound mind, which come from sound doctrine. Now, what's hard to understand about that? See how easy I break things down? I'm amazing. Yeah, right. I've told you this before. My favorite verse in the Bible for my everyday living is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. You know what it says? It says, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And there's four things that it's profitable for. Somebody want to venture out a guess what the first one is? It's doctrine. Then it says for reproof. 
Then it says for correction. Then it says for instructions in righteousness. Now, you know how that translates down to me? All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. You know what it's profitable for? Doctrine. Doctrine shows me and you what's right in life. The word doctrine means to teach. The doctrines of the Bible are the teachings of the Bible. And doctrine is essential. So when God wrote it down through Timothy, he said the first thing it's profitable for is doctrine. Because you and I have a terrible problem. We can't discern or don't have the discretion to tell when something's real and when something's phony. So he says, learn doctrine, learn what's right. Then the next thing he says is, reproof. Once you learn what's right, then God shows you what's wrong. Then he sixth when it's correction. Once God shows you what's right, once God shows you what's wrong, then he shows you how to fix it. The last one is instructions in righteousness. Once the doctrine shows you what's right, reproof shows you what's wrong, correction shows you how to fix it, and then the last one, instruction in righteousness, shows you and me how to keep it fixed. How much simpler is it than that? You know what the problem is in most of our lives? We hit the first one, and the first one goes up against something we don't like. So we stop right there. The problem you have, the problem I have, and the problem every child of God you ever met who's got a problem has, I'll guarantee you, you can put it in the first one. Doctrine. Not understanding fully what they're saying, what they're teaching, what they're believing, and the only people dumber than them are the people that listen to them. Lack of doctrine takes away your discretion, takes away your discernment. You've been told a thousand times as you read the Bible that the devil's out to deceive you. And the problem today is for God's people to be able to look at the real genuine article versus the phony one. And that takes discernment and discretion. And that comes from a sound mind, which comes being sound in the faith. Sound words, sound speech, and sound doctrine. Let me show it to you again. Turn your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 5. Got to lay this foundation out for you. See this tremendous doctrine. You've got to understand that the rest of your life from this day on is going, to be, is going to be a day from which you are going to have to look at and understand that you're not going to learn the Bible just by getting quick fixes. You're going to have to discipline yourself to study it and to learn it. And you're going to have to, and because he said down there at the end of 2 Timothy that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All right, Hebrews chapter 5, here it is again. And here, the same problem there is the problem we got today. Look at 5, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. For when the time, ye ought to be teachers. You have need that one teach you again would be the first principle. I could use that verse today if we could all apply that verse. Some of you have been around here for what? Five years. And you still don't know any more about the Bible. You've got more excuses in your world than the chiefs got plays in their playbooks. For you, it's, oh, next week, Bob, oh, next month, oh, next year, should we get this done? You, got, you procrastinate so long in your life. And your life is slipping away every minute, every hour, every day. It's something you cannot regain. And one of these days, you're going to wake up, and I'm afraid it's going to be the judgment seat of Christ, and you're going to have, you're going to have squandered all the time that God has given you. For when, for the time, you ought to be teachers... Everybody needs to take that verse and burn it into your heart today. There, for the time you ought to be teachers, somebody has to again teach you which be the first principles of the oracles of God. You know what the first principles of the oracles of God are? That's your salvation. 
You got people you can't get past the fact that they're, they're, they struggle with it all the time or some other goofy issue in their life. So we just doll out verses like we do cards in five stud poker. And you just wish, hope you get a good hand. Well, there are no good hands. You've got to learn the doctrine. You've got to understand the doctrine. And when you understand the sound doctrine, it gives you a sound mind, which makes you sound in the faith. And then you have sound words. Then you have sound speech. You speak with authority because you know what you're talking about. For when the time, you ought to be teachers. You have need to teach you again. Be the first principle of the oracles of God. And here it comes. It'll become such as have need of milk and not of strong milk. meat. Now, milk in the Bible is always a picture of stuff that you give babies, obviously. And you get a lot of Christians, when they first get saved or they first come in, you, you feed them with milk. And you help them. That would be discipleship. Helping them break through the thing. But there comes a time in your life when you've got you to gotta be able to take strong meat. Now, strong meat in the Bible is doctrine. Doctrine. Look at verse uh, 13. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word. It's all right for here's a babe. It's all right to start out that way. Now, most of you work in the nursery down there. Wouldn't you think it was strange if you walked into the back, back room there where they keep the little babies? We got all our little things set up back there. Wouldn't you be shocked to death if you went back there and there was some 34-year-old guy with his half his torso in that little baby thing? Big old hairy legs hanging out. <laughs> Bottle in his mouth. Diaper on. Arms hanging out. Can't even fit in the thing. <clears throat> Big old hairy legs hanging out. Bottle in his mouth. And, and, and talking like a baby and wham wham like a baby. W- would you not think there's something wrong here? Or would you maybe next thing would be, I don't think I want to work in the nursery today. <laughs> well, that's the way Christians get. When they stay babies and take out the process of spiritual growth in their lives for them. And you don't think there's not a nursery down there that's a physical nursery, that in every church in this city there isn't a spiritual nursery. Christians who refuse to grow up. Christians who in a spiritual sense just have milk all their lives because they refuse to get into the Bible and get a sound mind which is built on sound doctrine and leads to the rest of the stuff. Verse 14, here it comes. <clears throat> but strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age. You see, you grow spiritually. You don't start a, stay a baby. You grow spiritually. You get some age under you, spiritually speaking. Even those, here is the key to it, by reason of use. Then using the Bible, <clears throat> learning the Bible, studying the Bible leads to you coming to the place where you get strong meat. And have used their, and have their exes, senses exercised to discern both, here it comes, good and evil. Discernment. Discernment comes from you growing spiritually to come to the point where you're not a baby anymore. You now don't have to deal with the milk. You now have strong Bible doctrine and you speak with authority on what you believe and what you know about your own salvation. That's the key. And I want to tell you something. Whatever issue you have in your life today, and I just use eternal security, but I mean, because that's the one I deal with most of the time, but I'm telling you, it can be any issue. Just getting a few verses around here won't help. You need an anchor in your soul that anchors you to what you believe. And it's doctrine, ladies and gentlemen. It's doctrine. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Doctrine is the answer. 
And I tell you in church history all the time that another, another deficiency in God's people's life, you're orphans. Most of God, not, not you guys, most of God's people are orphans. They don't know where they've come from. The reason why you get caught by what goofy little thing, goofy little people say, that you hear on goofy little radio programs or goofy little televisions, is because you don't understand where you come from. And when somebody talks about church history, you're oblivious. Because you're, a, spiritually speaking, you're an orphan. And you've heard me say it many, many times. I, I say it all the time. If you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. And if you don't know where you come from and you don't know where you're going, please don't insult my intelligence by telling me you know where you're at today. But that's the state of the church. If I ask the average Christian you find today that just go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, if you ask through him a Bible and ask him to, what happened the day he got saved, he'd go to John 3. About Nicodemus being born again. I'm sorry, that's not where you go to find out what happened. If I ask him where he came from down through church history or down through history, if I, if I, said, if I said to him, you know what, what are you? He said, I'm a Baptist. I said, you know what, you don't find any Baptist in the, in the 14th century. Why is that? He'd say, well, maybe I shouldn't be one then. I would shake his very foundation. You know why? Doesn't know where he came from. You ask me that question, and I'll chase your little rear end down to high V and back. I know where I was in the 14th century. I know where I was in the 12th century. I know where I was in the 1st century. And I know where I'm at today. And I'll tell you what. If I, somebody told me last week, it was kind of an insult. When we were talking about the Bible, can't figure who it was. Probably a good thing, because I wouldn't like him today. That's why I laid out all my great magnificence and, and, and gave him all my great wisdom. He looked at me and said, well, if you can figure it out, anybody can. I said to him, yeah, that's right. If I can figure it out, anybody can. I was the dumbest kid on the block. I was, not, I was so stupid growing up that I didn't know anything. I didn't suspect anything. I'm telling you, if I can get it, and when I tell you up here and later, I'm not telling you that because I got such a great intellect. I'll tell you what I do got. I got a book that is absolute and I believe it. And God will take anybody. In fact, the dumber you are, the better you are. I get some people come in and talk to me, boy, and they want to go up on this level here and they, and they, they have no... I like them right down here. I like them right down there where what you see is what you get. Because that's where you got to start to get with God. And I'm, this sounds terrible. The dumber you are, the better off you are. The more I got to unlearn in your brain to show you the basic thing, the better off you are. Now, there's some great common truths in life that you bring along with you. But I'll tell you what, when it comes to God and building a relationship with that book, he's absolutely right. If I can do it, anybody can do it. I'm telling you. It doesn't take, it doesn't take an intellect to learn the Bible. It just takes the right attitude of heart. Boy, are you going to see that when we get into Ruth. My, my, my. If coming through the book of Ruth doesn't change your life and your perspective after you see it, it's unchangeable for those of you that are coming through it. And I'm telling you, whatever issue you got today, you need an anchor. And the problem is you don't know where you're at because you don't know where you're going and you don't know where you come from. There's a saying that came out a number of years ago, and I love it. I had it on a T-shirt, but I wore it so much, I wore it out. And it simply said, 
I'm in an insane asylum that is run by the inmates. And that was a popular saying back in the 70s and the 80s. When you didn't like your job, you'd say, oh, this place is an insane asylum run by the inmates. Well, you didn't like something in life that you were part of, you'd say, this, uh, we look at the world today, and you can actually say, in, with all truth, this world is an insane asylum run by the inmates. But you know what? It's also true of the church. I have never seen, and I'll tell you what, don't sit there and try to defend it. The very fact you don't know what happened to you today, you got saved, and you've been saved five years or more, and you couldn't open that Bible and show me what changed between your body, soul, and spirit, don't give me the gas that the church is a great thing. You're right back to Hebrews. You have to learn the first fundamentals of the principles of God over and over and over again, and you can't get past it. Didn't mean to spit on you, but Holy Ghost spit. You'll be all right. You had a headache. Did me spitting on you heal you? Feel better now? Oh, okay, I'm glad. There's a war movie I love. And every once in a while in war movies, they always have an irony that I think is great. Anybody, how many saw the movie The Big Red One? It's been out for years. It's about the 1st Infantry Division, and it's got, uh, uh, I don't know who's in it. It's, uh, it's good. Um, but anyway, in one of these scenes, and I, and, I, when I, and I look for things like this and, because many times they build an irony into these movies. And when you see the irony, it's so true of life. But here's the deal. <clears throat> this patrol from the 1st Infantry Division is trying to walk, knock out this self-propelled gun that is blowing everybody up on the beach. So they find it, and it's heavily fortified with Germans. But it's early in the morning. But this monastery, is in a, it's a nut house. And it has a lot of crazy people in it. And it shows scenes inside the house. And, you know, they got all your typical crazy people, you know. And it just, it's a goofy place. It's a crazy place. And the Germans have taken it over because they know the Allies won't bomb it and kill crazy people. So the Americans sneak up. They kill all the guys on the outside. And they sneak in. And there's a woman in there that's is helping him. She gets them in. And so they finally get into this one room about the size of this. And the Germans are eating breakfast over here. And the people of the insane asylum was eating over here. And suddenly, the Germans see the Americans. And in this room, with all of these crazy people, plus the Americans and the Germans, a firefight breaks out. And they're shooting everybody. And one of the German soldiers gets killed. And one of the crazy guys, who's seeing all this, he walks over and he picks up a German Schmeiser, which is a machine, 9mm machine gun, and he's looking at it. And he starts going... He looks at all of his crazy friends and he starts shooting them. But, but, but. And he looks at the camera and he says, Look at me. I'm sane. I'm sane. <laughs> the most insane thing in this world is war. Have for a crazy guy to look what's going on around him in a mental institution and pick up a gun and be thinking, Oh, he can kill people like everybody else. That makes him sane. Boy, that's where we're at today. We think just because we get a Bible and we go to church someplace that we're, we're sane. We're sane. We're not. When I was a young guy, I didn't have any place to preach. We didn't have this church. We wouldn't have any place to preach today. But anyway, back then, I couldn't. So I, I found my own place to preach. One time I pre- preached at the Maslin State Hospital. It was a state hospital for crazy people. And you ain't ever had a blessing. To, I mean, some of you guys preach down the mission. You know it gets rough down there. Fight broke out, or almost a fight broke out last couple of times down there, you know. They'll challenge you from the floor, you know. 
And I like to watch you guys how you handle it. Some of you get flustered, you know, you don't know what to do. I like somebody to throw a brick at you at some point. And see what you do. You know what I do? I pick it up and throw it back. You say, well, you hit the wrong guy. Ah, who cares? You just throw it back. But I'm preaching at the Masculine State Hospital. And I probably got about this many crazy people in that one, too, if I can remember, right? <laughs> and I've told you that when I learned to preach, what I did is I started listening to guys that were really good preachers. Because I was a terrible preacher, and I, I never lost who I was, but I wanted to find my own identity. But I found these guys really, I watched how they moved the crowd. I watched guys preach, boy, and there'd be 2,000, 3,000 people out there, and I'd watch a guy keep their attention for an hour. And when he'd walk back and forth, their eyes would just go. I would sit up on the pulpit uh, up there next to him because I used to play in an in a orchestra that played for the hymnals, and I'd watch him hold a crowd, move a crowd. I'd watch how he said things and did things, and I would learn from that. And I learned a guy, I saw a guy one time, and he preaching, and he took a, he took a philosophical approach, which I thought was a good way because he, he, he come at it differently. And he, he come up to the crowd, and he, you know, and when you preach, your body and the way you do things is all important. Because if you come up to the pulpit, you know, like I do, and I, and I sometimes do it, but you come up sometimes and you just start in. But if you come up and you just take a moment, and you don't say anything, People are now starting to think, oh, something's wrong. <laughs> oh, he's going to say something really special because this is different. See, you use things like that. You, you use your body movement. You think you accent things. And, you know, I try to teach guys how to do this. And, and I learned. I heard a guy get up there, and he, he stopped. He pulled. place was packed. He took his, oh, and this is another one. <laughs> See? Like I'm going to say something. Now, I could say the same thing one way and then do this, and it'll have more impact because you're visually taking in everything I'm doing, okay? And so this guy got up there, and he stopped, and he looked at the crowd and waited for a few moments, and he says, you know, he says, I want each person to ask themselves today, what's the purpose of you being here tonight? See, he started that way. Now, you got him because you got it set. Now you're going to come back. You can pretty much go whatever you want to do. So I thought, that's a good approach. So I'm preaching at the Masculine State Hospital. I walked up, and I didn't get it exactly right, the way he said it. And I walked up to the pulpit. Took, I took time. And I didn't even wear glasses, but I got me some and broke the glass out of them because they're crazy. They're not going to be able to see it. And they're probably sitting down there thinking, I'm crazy. He ain't got no glasses in his glasses. They call me crazy, you know. And, and, I, and I come up there, and I, and I, and I said, and I, and I said it wrong. I said, I, 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 was, I was nervous, you know. And I said, to my, I said to him, I spoke to him, I said, let us, and this is an absolutely true story. I said, let us ask ourselves today, why are we here? <laughs> and the guy in the front stood up and said, hey, preacher, we're here because we ain't all there. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, it didn't matter what I said. You know what you got today? You got a lot of crazy preachers. You got a lot of crazy teaching. And you got a lot of crazy Christians that don't have the mind of Christ that's able to discern and have the discretion to know what's being said. I've preached to you before a great three-point message. Don't be deceived. Don't be disarmed. And don't be discouraged. 
When Paul wrote the book of Romans, it's your foundation of Bible doctrine to keep you sane in the midst of insanity that's around this Christian world today and around the world in general. Now, this last circumcision, this last circumcision is the key to the doctrine on which everything the rest of your Christian life is built on because it is the foundation, fundamental doctrine that of your salvation of when you got saved. When I asked the question earlier, and I knew that most of you weren't going to be able to answer, but when I asked the question, what changed about you the day you got saved? This is the question, this is the answer to that question. And you're going to find that I've already given you the two, two circumcisions. I gave you, the, I gave you the, the, the Jew, which was the physical one, his body. The Gentile, which had to do with his conscience and his heart. Now we're going to look at the one that has to do with your soul. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Now this is called the circumcision of Christ. And it's found in Colossians chapter 2. Now this circumcision is not physical. And it has nothing to do with your conscience. But it's a spiritual circumcision that has to do with your soul and your flesh. And this is what changed about you the instant you became born again. The microsecond you trusted Christ. The moment you went from darkness to light. This is what changed about you the day you got saved. And here lies the eternal security once you understand the doctrine. You notice I haven't thrown any verses out. I've been giving you solid, hard Bible doctrine. All right, pick it up in verse 5. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also, here it comes, now watch this very carefully, and we're going to explain all this, in whom also, now watch, in him, in Christ, in whom, in whom, verse 11, also, ye are circumcised, here it comes, with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism, that's not water, we'll see that in a moment, buried with him in baptism, wherein you are risen with him through the faith, here it comes again, of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespassings, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances, the Old Testament that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, what you've got there, simply put, the moment you got saved, and I'm going to walk you through the process, the moment you got saved, the instantaneous time you got saved, God through an operation of God made without hands, through a spiritual circumcision. Remember in the Old Testament, it was a physical circumcision. And they took the part of the male anatomy that had to do with the flesh and had to do with his seed. And they removed the flesh from that part of the anatomy that had to do with birth, life, and seed. In a physical sense. 
And of course, it's in a physical sense because it's a covenant with the nation of Israel. But there's a spiritual circumcision. That spiritual circumcision takes place inside you, not anywhere physically on your body. But what it does in the same fashion is the moment you get saved, God takes a big old knife. A big old knife and he cuts the flesh, this godly, ungodless flesh, away from my soul. You see, what's saved about you this morning is not your flesh. This is why you struggle. This is why you can be saved and still commit sin. It's why you can be saved and still have issues in your life. Because the Bible says that after you get saved, you have two natures. You have the old nature and you have the new nature. The old nature is your flesh. The new nature is your soul, which now the Holy Spirit of God, at the moment of salvation, has come in and took up permanent residency inside your soul. The Bible says you were sealed under the day of redemption. That's when he comes and gets you. So now you're, you're a schizo. You're two people. You have an old Bob and you have a new Bob. Paul calls them the old man and the new man. He calls them the old nature and the new nature. Now, that's what transpired when you got saved. You got spiritually circumcised. Your flesh got cut away from your soul. Your flesh is not going to heaven. Your flesh is going back to the ground when you die. Or if Christ comes, it gets changed into a glorified body. And your soul goes, this flesh is never going to inherit anything but corruption. This flesh will never help you. This flesh will never be a benefit to you. It will be the ball and chain around your ankle or around your neck or wherever you hook it that will drag you down the rest of your life unless you set yourself free from it. You set yourself free from it by, first of all, getting saved and then the Spirit of God separating that through a spiritual circumcision, an operation made without hands of putting off the body of the sins, the flesh. All right? Now, with that in mind, let's go through this great chapter. Look at it. Let's look at the breakdown of verses 5 through 7 here. And let's look at how this thing lays out. 5, 7 says, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, loving and beholding your order and your steadfastness in Christ, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. All right, here it comes. The first thing he says in verse 5 is you're to be steadfast in your faith. You know how you get steadfast in your faith? You know what that means? Not doubting that you can lose your salvation. That comes from a sound mind, which we now know comes from sound doctrine. It produces sound in the faith, sound speech, and sound words. And when you get that in your life by understanding what we're talking about, you fully understand how you could never lose your salvation. Because now you are steadfast in your faith. Then he says in verse 6, then because of that, you, verse 6 says, as ye have therefore received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him. All right? The may you maintain that relationship is to walk after him. What does that mean? It means let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That means you don't go out of your mind. Remember over there at the demon-possessed man in the Gospels, I think it's Mark chapter 8, someplace in there, he was, he was demon-possessed and he met Jesus. And before he was demon-possessed, he was running around naked. He hung out in the tombs and dead people and doing all the crazy things. And the Bible makes a clear statement that when he met Jesus, what Jesus did for him was put him back in his right mind. You know what this book is? It's the mind of Christ. It's everything God wants you to know, and more important, everything God wants you to be. Once you get saved, this is the mind that needs to guide you. If you're living your life outside of this book as a Christian, spiritually speaking, you're out of your mind. This becomes your mind. This becomes your mind. Look at verse 7. 
Rooted. Rooted. There's your doctrine. Rooted. And here comes your church and built up in him. And established in the faith as you have been taught. Somebody's teaching them. Now this is the process by which you learn Bible doctrine. And a lot of people today don't like Bible doctrine. And of course now that we know Hebrews chapter 5, you understand why. The absence of doctrine in the church produces babies. And I'm not interested in building a church of babies. So we will always run to the doctrinal side harder than anything else. You know why? Because I, when I decided to build a church, I decided not to build a church full of babies. I'll take men and women who want to learn the Bible, learn the doctrines, who are willing to take the time to do the work. That's where the stability is. If you think as a military uh, commander, if I was leading a battle, that I would go down and take a bunch of two and three and four-year-olds into battle, you got to be nuts. Well, let me tell you something. Taking two and three-year-old toddlers in Christianity to the spiritual warfare is just as crazy. I need men who will do it a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I, knew them, I need women who will look at the doctrine and, and do what the Word of God says. Building, rooted, established, a sound mind. Now look at the warning. Verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. There's two warnings in your Bible for those of you that have discernment that every Christian was told to warn against. One of them is right here in Colossians 2, and it's philosophy. The other one is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, and it's science falsely so-called. Those two things will screw up more Christians than anything in all of the Bible, in all of history. And, of course, that's, that's, that's the devil's plan. You notice that these things all, and I talk, talk about the progression and the consistency of Bible Christianity. The number one enemy, uh, of the two enemies of the Bible Christianity are one science, two philosophy. And that's the way they flow. Hey, let me tell you something. When the devil wanted to, we've already learned this from coming through some of the stuff we've come through. When the devil wanted to corrupt the Old Testament writings, you know what he did? He did it through the philosophical writings of, of uh, uh, Philo, Origen, Pantanus, and all those boys that got it from the Greeks. When he wanted to destroy the Jews, he did it through philosophy. When he wanted to destroy the New Testament books, he did it through philosophy. When he wanted to destroy the church, he did it through the Christian philosophers. It's always been that way. Hey, the first attack the devil ever had. You ever see it? You know what philosophy does? Philosophy does this, and this is where it's damaging. This is what philosophy does. Because in philosophy, there's no absolute truth. There's no absolute truth in philosophy. Everything is relative. And in philosophy, there can be no absolute truth. So a philosopher will never make a statement. He'll always ask a question. In other words, philosophy takes the eternal statements of God and turns them into a question. Now, if you don't know that, then you've got to go back to Genesis chapter 3 because when the devil showed up to Eve to destroy the whole thing of man, he didn't ask her to go out and get a drink. He didn't ask her to go out and do some terrible thing. What he did was took a statement and turned it into a question. The Bible says, Yea, hath God said. He said, Yea, hath God said. He put a question. He turns the statements of the Bible into philosophical questions. One time in the Gospel of John, Jesus went up against Pontius Pilate. And he's going down there in that great study in Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18. And Jesus says this, makes a statement. He says, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. You know what Pilate said? Question, what's truth? 
and then walked out of the room, didn't even wait for the answer. Philosophy, it's damaging to Christianity because it takes the absolute standard, the absolute doctrine, the absolute truth, and puts a question mark on it. And that's what it does. Science does another whole thing. We don't have time to get into that. He's talking about it here, the progression that you go through. Look at verse 8, vain deceit. That's what philosophy leads to because it's not of Christ, it's of you. Once you go through vain deceit, then you come on down through it, you see that it's, it's traditions of men. And then it says the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. That's why it's an enemy. Now all this happens because the church loses its sound doctrine. When it loses its sound doctrine, it loses its sound mind. When it loses its sound mind, it then ceases to be sound in the faith. And that's why you have so many of God's people don't know what they believe today. Don't know what they believe today. And that's why they can't identify the real article that when somebody pops into their life and says something, they're in a quandary about it because they don't know how to figure it out for themselves. Look at 9 and 10. Here we go. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Two of the greatest verses in all of the Bible and very important in understanding the circumcision of Christ. First of all, notice in Him, in Christ. The day you got saved, you got in Him. And He's in you. Now the question is, how'd you get in Him and how'd He get in you? You see, that's another thing. That's one of the seven mysteries in the Bible. I guarantee you, you ask the next Christian that's been saved, give him five years grace. Next Christian's been saved five years or more to to tell you right now, lay out the seven mysteries that, and the seven things you're not to be ignorant of that Paul says that every Christian's got to know and they wouldn't even know them. Sound doctrine, sound mind, sound in the faith. Don't put a Band-Aid on your problem. Learn the doctrine that you're dealing with. It'll fix your problem completely. Now, he comes down here and he says this. He says, and you are complete in him. Right now, if you're saved, here's the kicker. Right now, if you're saved, you have everything that God is living inside you. You know that? You know if you're saved right now, truly born again and saved, you have everything that God is. The power that He used to create the universe, the power He used to speak galaxies into existence, the power He used to do this and do that, you have all of those things living inside you right now. You have the power that God has. He has no more power than you already have inside you right now because you're complete in Him. I've told you before, there's an oil problem in this country, and we don't have any oil in America, and a lot of God's people are like America. We export our oil in because why? We don't want to dig in our own country. So we pay high dollars and high prices to everybody else and we whine about it because we've got to export it in. When America, if she just take her own place and loosen some of the restrictions with her own country. I told somebody the other week, you know, we, years ago we talked about the Alaska pipeline. That was going to solve all our problems. The Alaska pipeline is condominium for raccoons and squirrels. Nobody's using it. We always got a plan that doesn't work so then we get another plan. Let me tell you something. If we just drill right now where we know oil is in Alaska and the places we got, we wouldn't be dependent on anybody. But we're not going to do that. Why? Because we're never going to solve our own problems. We're always going to reach out and try to be dependent on somebody else. And you know what? The guys that we're dependent on right now for our oil are our enemies and they hate us. And they're going to tighten that thing and Bush going over and said, hey, why don't you cut us some slack and give us a couple more barrels? Yeah, right. You know the answer to our problem? Get rid of the tree huggers and start digging right here. 
get all the oil we can get because we got it right here. And you know what? We're not going to do that. You know why we're not going to do that? For the same reason some of you won't get in that book. Just like this country's sitting on a hundred billion trillion dollars worth of oil, you're sitting on a megaton of gold bullion found in this book that'll solve every problem you got if you'll just start digging into yourself instead of calling me. Yes. Oh, I'm glad you called me. <laughs> I don't want to ever say that so you think, oh, you don't want me to call you. I want you to call me. But you know what I do for you? I really don't solve your problems. I'm not that smart. I've looked at Christianity all my life. You know, you get some pastors that, you know, they think that they're, uh, I never get that illusion in my mind. When I look at my ministry and my, me and my people, you know what I am? I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. I'm an old city mission union bum, and I found a house that passes out bread. And then I found out that they got bread upstairs, but down in the basement they got sirloin steak. And I've just been eating there ever since. This is your oil field. You come to my house, I don't tell you how to fix your problem. I just pass out drill bits. That's all I do. I say, here, drill here. Oh, I might run a test hole for you. But you got to dig it. You got to drill it. You come over to my house, I don't, I don't, I don't sit there. I, I, I give you drill bits. I show you where to drill, where to dig, and what to get. Because you're sitting on a million dollar, billion, trillion gold bullion right here. Just like America's problem will be over in the next two years. If she just started drilling for oil here, building more refineries, and then we'd sell it to them for $500 a barrel. Amen. But they won't do it, and your problem could be over tomorrow if you just start drilling in the oil field that God's given you. But you won't. You won't. Softball season, man. Got too many things going. Graduation, weddings, all of these things all take a priority. And this is why we're in the problem we're in today. Now look at verse 11, 12, and 13, and here it is, and we're going to be done. In whom also are ye circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. There it is. Notice it says, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You see, this was not about your fleshly body like the Old Testament one was. This isn't about your heart like the Gentiles was on their conscience. No, no, this one's with your soul. And this one is the day you got saved. Before you were saved, you know what the difference was? Before you were saved, your soul was stuck to your flesh. That's your whole problem. And that's why when you died in your sins, your body went to the grave and your soul went to hell. Because they were stuck together. And because they were stuck together, your soul was in sin. And the soul that sinneth, it shall what? Boy, we got some real Bible theologians here. The soul that sinneth, it shall what? Die. So what happened was the day I got saved, God took out that big old machete and just went in a moment, in an instant. He just went, and I'm free from the body of my set flesh. So excited, can't even say it. I'm free. And then on top of that, to top it off, not only did he separate me, but his spirit came in and sealed me so no sin could get in. Because you see, that's the only way God could do it. God can't, God can't put up with unholiness. My, I'm a sinner. How does a holy, righteous God dwell in a sinner? When in the Old Testament, he wouldn't even walk through the camp till they got everything to fighting out. Why? If, if everything had to be just right, how in the world does a holy God come and live inside somebody wretched like me? 
Does he lessen his standards of holiness to let me in? Absolutely not. The only way he could do it, the only way he could do it was the pattern that he did physically. Where the Old Testament Jew was to circumcise himself on, the, on his flesh, of the foreskin of his flesh, and separate it from the seed. The Bible says we're not born again by corruptible seed, by incorruptible, by the word of God. When that, God separated me and separated my flesh from my soul. It's the only way he could do it. Because he separated. And then the Spirit of God who was holy could dwell in my soul. And he sealed it. Now, for you to get unsaved, you'd have to get uncircumcised. So I guess in your doctrine, there's a saved, and then there's a super glue moment. Stand up here, you dirty sinner. Oh, I'm gluing your soul back into your flesh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got you. You just lost it. Hey, Michael, we got any more super glue? We're out. How stupid. You see, once you understand it. Now, I'll give you one more piece. You know what eight is in your Bible in numerology? Eight is the number of new beginnings. When God does the thing, he does it in seven. And number eight in your Bible is new beginnings. Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The day you got saved, you were, you were a new creature in Christ Jesus. All things are passed away. All things become new. But the day you got saved, that's why it doesn't matter what you did. Doesn't matter where you've been. When you get saved, it all changes. It's new. It's a new beginning. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Eight is the number of new beginnings. So Bible's so consistent. Back in the Old Testament, when they physically circumcised that child, they did it on the eighth day. Oh, that's some book you got. That's some book you got. Verse thirteen. Or verse 12, buried with him in the baptism. Now, you see, we, we, because we don't know, we think that's water. No, that's not baptism. That's the baptism of Romans chapter 6. That's where the foundation for this doctrine is built in Romans. That's the, that's the baptism of Ephesians 4. That's the baptism of, of 1 Corinthians 12, where by one spirit are you all baptized into one body. Water baptism is down the line after the real baptism. The real baptism in the Bible isn't of water. It's the spiritual baptism that you get into in Christ. You know why? When we baptize somebody, we put them down and we say, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. You know why we don't sprinkle? You know why we put them under the water? Because it's a, you know why it's immersion? Some churches sprinkle. I've never understood it. It's supposed to, it's, it's supposed to picture death. How many ever been to a funeral? How many ever went to the gravesite? When they bury him, do they stand him up and throw dirt in his face? <laughs> See? I'm sane. <laughs> I'm sane. We're the only ones sane left in the world. How do you bury somebody? Well, you stand him up, get dirt, and throw it in his face. He's buried. No, you put him down and bring him up. And that's what it's a picture of immersion. Because when I got saved, he, he, in his death, I was buried in the likeness of his death. But I was raised in the glory of his resurrection. And I was sealed and immersed with the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Can't ever lose it. When you understand the doctrine behind it, Amen. can't ever lose it. When you understand the doctrine behind it, you'll never be confused 
on where you're at and being sound in your faith. And you being dead, verse 13, in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened. Now, every time you find the word quickened in the New Testament, it's always going to be dealing with the day you got saved. He quickened you together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinance, the Old Testament law that was against us. And my friend, through faith of the operation of God, God had raised us up. And just like the Jew got physically circumcised on his body, and just like the Gentile, God looked at their attitude of heart based on their conscience, and the Bible says they had a circumcision of the heart. And this is why I separated ours out, because you had to see it. I did not want to run through this in just some whimsical way. You, this is the fundamental doctrine of which if you're going to do anything for God, you must understand and we must build on it. And if you still don't have it today, because I know it's new for a lot of you, you come and see me. I'll help you understand it and grasp it. I'll give you some more drill bits. I'll show you where to drill. I'll show you how to get it. I'll show you how to study it out. I'll show you how to understand the doctrine, not just get some verses and put a bandit on your broken arm. At the time of salvation, God performed an operation on me. And it was an operation made without hands that cut away my filth of my flesh from my soul, my eternal soul. And then God sealed me through the baptism of the Spirit with His soul. It's my anchor. You know, we're all going to have to deal with things. And you know, the devil, first thing the devil always goes after you on. Devil, you know, some of you are so proud of your strengths. And you all have some great strengths. But you know what? We all have weaknesses too. It's like a marriage. I have strengths and I have weaknesses. My wife has strengths and she has weaknesses. And a real marriage is one who complements the weakness and the strength with the strength with the weaknesses. And that's what makes a good marriage. Most men get so arrogant in their attitude that they think that their wife has nothing to contribute. And you know what? That We know how that thing goes. God puts you with somebody and gave you somebody because uh, they, they have a point of view that, that helps you through life. And you have strengths and weaknesses. I have strengths and weaknesses. Your wife has strengths and weaknesses. And together. But you know what? Church is the same way. There's a lot of things I don't do well. There's some things I do pretty good. But a lot of things I don't do well. A lot of things that I don't do well, some of you do well. So if that's the concept of the church. We work together. My, you compliment my weaknesses, I'll compliment yours. Where you're strong in one thing and I'm deficient in it, you make up the gap. Where you are, I will. And when the church takes that attitude because it's built on a sound doctrine with a sound mind... You don't get the craziness that goes on in most churches over with a lot of God's people. This needs to be a sane church. And a sane church is one that is built on biblical doctrine. And that's what makes it what it, God wants it to be. And that only become, any church is only as strong as the individual people who lend themselves to it. Like I said, I can tell you where the oil is. I can tell you all the riches. You're complete in Him. You have everything God wants. But you're the only one that can do the drilling. But I hope that helps you today. That is one of the that is the fundamental concept that you must understand. You must get down in everything that you do because if you don't know you're saved and you're not sure in your faith, why will you put your life on for on the line for Christ if you don't know where you're going to go when you die? And you have got to know and be sound in the faith, and it only comes from a sound mind, which comes from sound doctrine.
I'll just pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank